Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster Sam Baker. Today's guest, Tracy ann Oberman, has made a career out of defying expectations. After training as an actor, she went straight to the RSC before deciding to study stand-up so she could switch between comedy and drama. She has starred in Doctor Who, Friday Night Dinner, It's a Sin, amongst many others. But it was when she got the role of Chrissy Watts, Dirty Den's second wife on EastEnders, and sorry kids if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, that she became a household face and name. But right now, she's breaking more new ground as the first actress to play Shylock in a landmark production of The Merchant of Venice. Shakespeare's classic is transported to 1930s London, and Tracy Ann plays Shylock as a tough, no-nonsense Jewish matriarch inspired by her own grandmother. I never was brought up in a world where women were second place to men at all. And all credit to my grandfathers and uncles and my dad. It, it always felt that I could do anything, that the most important thing wasn't whether you were a, a man or a woman, was actually education. Education was the key to everything. Education could get you out of the slums. And uh, if you had a, you know, if you could educate yourself, then that was, that was the way out. Tracy Ann and I zoomed during a break in rehearsals to talk about the matriarchs that shaped her, refusing to be put in a box, standing up to anti-Semitism. We also discussed making your own opportunities as you get older, in praise of being pushy, the importance of putting your face on, and the power of older women in amazing shoes. Well, let's start by talking about Shylock. Then let's, let's start by talking about the production and then we can go on to talk about your life and your acting career and growing up you know let's let's talk about the production first well I'm in the middle of rehearsal so I'm about to go back in now literally and doing the we're about to rehearse the court scene where Shylock um is holding on to her contract that Antonio signed saying that in if in in the unlikely event that he forfeits on the payment she has the right to demand a pound of his fair flesh and it's uh 
it's a really interesting scene when you have Shylock played as a woman because it's a woman in a very male world, a working class woman in a very male world. And the person who is really out to get her is Portia, who is a woman dressed as a man. So it's almost an entirely male courtroom with a woman pretending to be a man who becomes more manly and misogynistic than the men. So it's an interesting scene to go into. But I always wondered what would happen if you took this play and you turned Shylock into a woman, very much based on my great-grandmother and my the big matriarchs in my family who had come from the Pale of Settlements, uh, Fiddler on the Roof Territory, those little slum villages in, in Belarus and the area where they were forced to live and then suffered huge violence at the hands of um, Tsar Nicholas and the Cos Cossacks. And my, my Bubba Annie, as we knew her, you know, was nearly raped at 14. She saw her father nearly being beheaded in these slum villages and was sent over at 14, 15 to escape these pogroms um, and ended up living in Cable Street in, the in a factory and then in the slum tenement of the East End, but they were such, they were so strong, these women, Sam. I, I mean, I think anybody that, particularly working class friends of mine or immigrant friends, everybody had a strong, you know, you've got strong matriarchs. You know, I had a great aunt called um, uh, Machine Gun Molly in the East <laughs> End, fantastic. who men were all terrified of. And another one, uh, I never met her, but she was called Sarah Portugal, also a widow, had a, wore a slash of red lipstick and smoked a cigar. And the men were absolutely terrified of her because these women were tough and strong and they knew how to cut deals and they, they knew how to, you know, run businesses. And in the absence of any men, these women were tough. And the stories, again, that I grew up with was my great-grandmother and my grandmother and my uncle, our great-uncle Alf, who all called England the Golden Medina because nobody wanted to behead or rape you here. But then they come face to face on the streets of Cable Street with Oswald Mosley, who had got married at Hitler's house to Diana Mitford. Honestly, Sam, every time anyone goes on about the glorious Mitfords, I want to scream because there mm -hmm. wasn't a dictator that those women didn't like. Um, you know, um, Diana Mitford got married to Mosley at Goebbels's house with Hitler as a witness. And Hitler gave Mosley the playbook of whipping up Jew hatred in order to take a big working class chunk with you and to gain power. But on this particular day at the Battle of Cable Street, having really whipped up the hatred, all the other working class communities in the area, the Irish, the working class English, the union, uh, unionists, the dockers, the small Afro-Caribbean community, they all pulled together and said, if you come for the Jew, you come for us all. And they all linked arms and they all threw marbles and they all threw rubbish and they turned over milk floats and they, they, they saw them off. And basically it was a real moment of unity. And that is a way, is the message of what I'm doing with my Shylock and this play, is to say that we are all better together and stronger together and prouder together when we fight a greater enemy rather than people who want to pit us against each other. Totally. I mean, you've never lacked for guts, let's be honest, but it does take guts to play Shylock, doesn't it? Because Shylock, however you play her, him, it's not a likeable character. Well, yeah, I mean, nobody, you know, I think one, I can definitely say this isn't a vanity project. This is a <laughs> project, you know, nobody wakes up and thinks all my life, you know, you always get asked, what would you like to play? And, you know, people in Shakespeare and people go, Cleopatra or Beatrice. Nobody says, I'm really desperate to play Shylock. Um, but I always, <laughs> I, I wanted to take this play and I wanted to reinvent it. And we've done an incredible schools project uh, package so that it can be taught properly in schools. And also we've done a great online world and we've worked very closely with Stand Up to Racism as well to go into younger school, to your schools and also community projects 
to talk about um, racism, anti-Semitism, and standing up against the greater evils of both hard right and hard left, hard left politics. So it does take guts in a way. But this play, I think the, the thing with Shylock, he's either a she. Actually, I can only think of her as a she. She's either a victim or a villain. And I've seen productions where they've taken out all the words that tend potentially puts her into a villain. You know, the idea of revenge or wanting that pound of flesh. You know, I've seen it where they've really stripped back any of the words that make her um, a villain. And I've also seen productions where, so, so she's a pure victim, and I've also seen productions where she's a pure villain. And, you know, there are no pure victims and there are no pure villains. So I've been really um, honouring the text, and I've tried to make her, at best, a living, breathing, understandable immigrant woman who's faced enormous anti-Semitism has had to be stronger than strong. I mean, also, Sam, remember, I mean, I think, you know, I've spoken to lots of friends of mine who are also from, you know, minorities whose mothers and grandmothers and aunties came over here from strong matriarchal backgrounds. And particularly in the 30s, these tough women that could strap a cow over their shoulders, walk yeah. across the village, cut a deal with a local, you know, butcher from the village who wasn't Jewish, come back, turn the hovel into a palace on Friday night, fight Cossacks, hide your children from the Russian army who wanted to take them from the age of seven. I mean, these women were strong. And then the very things that made them survive, they came over to England, where in the 30s, you know, your women were to be decorative and quiet mm. and passive and attractive and know their place. And these, so these women were an anathema. And in my personal um, experience of standing up to anti-Semitism, um, I have found that misogyny and um, racism, uh, there's a massive <laughs> interlocking of the two, because if you hate women, you certainly hate women who have got guts and balls and aren't afraid to speak out and won't go away when you tell them to. Yeah, you certainly hate a woman who won't shut up, don't you? That's oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. Doesn't know their place, that's the thing. If you're not, like, decorative and quiet, what even are you? Exactly. <laughs> you're a foreigner, get out. Yeah. Those women that you were talking about, those amazing matriarchs, and I've already, oh, Machine Gun Molly, I was say, how could I possibly forget that? That's brain fog for you. Um, <laughs> how did being brought up with those women, how did that affect you? I think it made me... It ne I never was brought up in any in a world where women were second place to men at all. And all credit to my grandfathers and uncles and my dad. It, it always felt that I could do anything, that the most important thing wasn't whether you were a, a man or a woman, was actually education. Education was the key to everything. Education could get you out of the slums. And uh, if you had a, you know, if you could educate yourself, then that was that was the way out. Um, so then it was open for everyone. So that was I was always basically told, educate yourself and do better than the last generation. So how did wanting to be an actress go down? Really badly, really, <laughs> really badly. I mean, it was just they used to laugh at me. I mean, I do think I was it Shirley Winters who said when you Shirley Winters said when you're born a fairy flies over your crib and she says you're going to be a nurse, you're going to be a teacher, you're going to be a lawyer, and she said and if you're really unlucky, the fairy says and you're going to be an actor. Uh, that's how <laughs> she saw it. And I do think that um, a little bit like being an activist, I think actors are, are born, not made. I think you've you've got to want to do it so much against such odds. But my, you know, no immigrant family who originated from the paler settlements want to hear their child saying, oh, I want to be an actor or an actress. You know, it was just, you might as well say you wanted to be an astronaut. Um, mm. There was no security in it. I think their attitude was, 
only children of actors and actresses get to work in as actors and actresses. How are you from Stanmore Middlesex going to end up being an actor? Don't be ridiculous. Go to university. Uh, try and get to university, which I did. So they weren't very happy about it. And then when I left and I got into, I did four years at uni and then I went to drama school. And my dad was, this is ridiculous because that's another three. And again, I paid for all of it. It was, I funded myself through it. My dad was like, at the end of that, I did another three years. My dad was literally going, you've done seven years of education. You could have been a doctor. Yes. What are we going to do? And then something the, proper, Trace. <laughs> and exactly, oh my God. How His exact words, Sam, were, if you insist on going down this route, quote, if you insist on going down this route, you are going to live the rest of your life in a bedsit with a cat for company. And every day I'm not doing that. I feel like I'm winning at life. Sam. But yeah, I was very like, I was, you know, I, I got, I remember getting a voiceover for After Eight the day after I left, which was funded me, ka-ching, so I could turn around and go, see, I'm not asking anybody for anything. Yeah. And then about a few weeks after that, I, I got a contract with the Royal Shakespeare Company for four years. So I never looked back, really. I never stopped working. You've always refused to sit in a box, haven't you? And I think, I mean, now that might be all right. I don't know. Is it all right? I don't know. But certainly back then, I mean, I think you and I are like exactly the same age. <laughs> so this would have been what the mid 80s ish, late 80s. Well, yeah, if you did 80s. seven years education, like yeah, maybe yeah. 90. Um, <laughs> it's kind of people wanted to know what to do with you, didn't they? It's like, OK, you go there and stay there. Don't budge. I think I think that's really true. Um, I think that I I always wanted to explore every aspect of the in, this industry, particularly when I started out around ninety one, which is when I left finally left education, got a proper job ninety one ninety two. You were either you know I did I did quite a few years at the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then it, you were seen as a stage actor. Actually, you know what, Sam? I'm going to re reclaim actress because Dorothy Parker always said, scratch an actor and you get an actress. So in my opinion, they're all, we're all actresses. So um, <laughs> it was, um, you know, I was very much seen as a stage actress and a classical stage actress, and it was really hard to be seen for television. And then I remember I got my first job in uh, doing a TV sitcom, a comedy, and then after a few years, I was only seen as a television actress. And the idea then that you wanted to write or you wanted to write comedy or you wanted to write like radio plays or so it, it wasn't seen you couldn't be a renaissance woman and I think that was something that I always was a little bit ahead of my time on because I re I did refuse to be put in into a box so at the same time as doing loads of voiceovers I was also on the radio rep I was also doing lots of television I was also doing some start writing stand-up so I was trying to do everything and explore every area to see how it would work whereas nowadays I think it's much more um it's less it's less binary. I think you can be lots of different things. In fact, it's expected that you would be lots of different things. So now I feel like everything's caught up. So I, you know, I produce, I write, I, I create, I, you know, act, I make projects happen and, you know, write radio plays, voiceovers, narration, all of that stuff. But it was much harder back in the day to sort of be able to explain how you wanted to do it all and how you could do it all. Was that drive to be so versatile and to do everything, was that about never hitting a wall, do you think? I think that if you've got, there's a creative, I think I've got a very creative brain and it moves very, very quickly and I get bored very quickly and I'm always creating. I don't know whether I'm, I'm an undiagnosed ADHD. I don't know what it is. No. Very far. Do you think we all are? Yeah, I think, I, you know what, I think there are a lot, definitely. <laughs> Practically every stand-up comedian I talk to 
He's just been diagnosed. Oh, really? Yeah. It's interesting. Well, I definitely think my brain like works at 100 miles an hour and I've always... I've always, I'm always at ideas, ideas and making so I can run like three or four projects, you know, I'll get up and I'll write a radio play at the same time, learning my lines at the same time. I'm in the West End doing noises off at the same time. I'm, this is, you know, also doing a narration until 12 at night. So that I, I just think number one, that's how I'm wired and I get bored quite quickly. But number two, you know, I remember when I was in EastEnders and, and I loved it. It was really exciting, but there was a feeling of being slightly trapped in the same job and ultimately doing the same scene again and again. And for me, that wasn't the creativity that I was craving. And I think it's always about learning new stuff, doing new stuff, just being in the same holding pattern um, never doesn't feel creatively fulfilling to me. Yeah. Do you drive your agent mad? Well, I create, I create a lot of my own work. So, um, I, yeah. so I've got, you know, I've got lots of friends who are, who are my age, who are all, you know, actresses and actors, but there's, it's like, um, you know, in the fair, there's like a big claw that comes down and picks oh, up a yeah. soft toy. Like in Toy Story. Exactly. Claw. And it sometimes feels that everybody's like waiting, looking at the claw and waiting for the claw to come down and pick them up and take them. And then they give them a job and then it pops them back into the pool mm. again. And it's a really passive and helpless place to be. Some people don't mind it. I, I like being in the pool, looking up at the light, pick me, pick me, and waiting for the claw to come down. And that's really exciting. But it also, it puts you in a really, um, you know, if you're a creative person and you've got things to say and you've got things you want to explore and stories that you want to tell and things that you haven't seen that that isn't that, that you wanted to say make happen. It's, it's sort of, as I got more confident and older, I realized, well, well, I should just try and make those things happen for myself. I want to be the change that I haven't seen. So I wanted to put on stories and tell stories and uh, write things that interested me. So I think I I probably, maybe early on, but nobody, I've got a lot of friends who are agents. So I, I do understand the game of being an agent. It's like being an estate agent, really, isn't it? There's only, only so many times you can put the, the same property up on the window, <laughs> yeah. but just with different, you know, I'm not, I'm not denigrating it, but ultimately, you know, you are, you're selling people, you're selling talent. So there's only so much that they can do. They can't make somebody, well, you know, you've got to work with your agent. So you've touched a soft spot there. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> do I my agent? Um, but I think I'm quite a good client because I, I get the um, I get the industry in all its totality. So I know it isn't just a case of bringing your agent. You've got to try and, you, you know, you work hand in hand with your agent to try and make things happen. Has the making your own project and increasingly writing your own scripts, has that come, has that grown as you've got older? Because one of the things I notice with very many of the women who've come on the shift is they bet they kind of say, I got to this point, I looked around, I couldn't see any opportunities. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to make my own. I think um, I've been very lucky in that I've always worked, always worked. I think my work ethic is, you know, I've always, I've never had big periods of unemployment. And I think that's because I diversified into lots of different areas and it, it's been very good. I think I always wanted to write and I was always, given opportunity you know I was always asked earlier on in my career oh you you know you're, you're really funny or you can write will you do something and I never had the confidence to do it I was always very nervous and frightened and I'd start projects and never see them through but I honestly think becoming a mum like at 39 quite late having never held a child never picked one up I'd never changed a nappy I was you know really slightly like oh what do I do with this but when I, I was really good at being a mum as well as working <laughs> I went back into the theatre after four months but I just keep nurturing this child and keeping her alive and and sort of being able to 
I know this, is, this probably sounds a cliche, but it just gave me enormous confidence. And I thought, well, you know, if I can do the, that job and I'm, and I'm doing okay at it, I'm going to write a script and see what happens. I met a woman, um, a woman I've been working with on radio called Liz Anstey, who's brilliant, who came to see me in a play and said, I want, you should write a play for me, write down some ideas. So I literally jotted a few ideas out on the back of an envelope, gave it to her. And she ran me four weeks later and said, oh, I've got you a commission. It was like, oh my God. Wow. That was my first radio play. And that, that was when, you know. She then you had to do it. Then I had to do it. It was like homework. <laughs> and normally in the past, I would have just left it and left it. And like, you know, I've, I've had commissions again uh, in my 20s and 30s that I just was crippled with fear of, you know, going back, delete, going back, delete. And this one, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and then I had and and it went really well and then it's just given me the confidence I don't know I think the thing is Sam age people say aging is frightening for women I think it gives us confidence I think when we achieve things that we didn't think we could achieve and things that didn't come easy you know I could be in a play I certainly couldn't um cook a roast chicken or (laughs) keep a child alive or do a school run and be able so all these like mundane things that I'd never even been interested in I found I could do those and I found those really hard and then it gave me confidence to do the creative stuff as well yeah it's like the more you do and the more you live through and the more you survive the more you know you can actually and the more you're not frightened of I think as women we're trained to be to live in fear of being disliked and for people mm. not liking our work i think that's what we're really inbred in us not for people to not like our work or to say no and i i think when you can get over that fear and say well that's all right you don't have to like it but i like it so i'm going to now take it somewhere else and see what they say i think when we we can get over the fear of of not being liked all the time i think it's a huge and also you know the idea of being ambitious or being um or speaking up for yourself or being oh, I hate this word pushy whatever the hell that mm. means it's just like if you believe in yourself and you believe in your work push away yeah it's those words isn't it it's like oh you're outspoken or you're pushy or you know those they're words that are always applied to women you never hear them apply to men they're ambitious you can be ambitious as a man you can be passionate as a man you can be fiery as a man um, and these pejorative words are attached to women and it's so boring and we have to be, you know, we have to be the change that we want to see and we have to be the change to show the younger generation uh, that they've got us, you know, in the minute you hear those words. I once had a director do this to me, ah, 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 literally went, ah, 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 and I went, oh, sorry. And I went, are you literally miming Are you shutting me down? Are you yeah. shutting me down? And he went, I just, I can't do actors that ask questions. I just, ah, 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 ah. So I got my coat and I walked to the door and I said, I tell you what, when you've worked out where you want me to stand, call me back in two weeks and just put me in those positions. And he went, what do you mean? I said, well, that's obviously what you want. You just want to meet puppet, put the puppet in the positions and then just call me back in the room. And I think that's what a lot of people would, men would want me to do. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah, Whereas creativity I, is quite a, is it should be a collaborative thing. You know, you're, it's a collaboration of different skills and talents. Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm always wary of generalising, but my experience is that that it's things tend to be much more collaborative in that. Situation. I hate a general. I do. I hate a generalisation, and I'm thinking in my head, am I generalising? And I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking, no, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm not. <laughs>
Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And there's this kind of uh, this thing, isn't there? About it's like a woman always has to be a role model. Do you know, it's like so you take Madonna, and it's it's like oh, she's such a bad role model. She's like this, that, and the other. And then you like nobody says that about Mick Jagger. But at the same time, do you feel like there is a bit of a responsibility as an actress in her mid fifties to, like you say, be the person who shows younger actresses that it's not all over. You don't go straight from the love interest to... Um, Driving Miss Davy. Like yes. Say, yeah. yes. Um, uh, do I feel like a role model? No, I, where I do feel like a role model is I've stood up, I stand up. You know, again, in this industry, everybody is so terrified because we're all self-employed. Everybody's so scared to say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, be on the wrong side of whatever the... Um, the political acceptance of the rehearsal room is or the, you know, you, you, people are very nervous to step out of line. And I think it's very important that if you can't be creative, if you are living in fear. And so um, I think what I, what I try and do is because I'm old enough, um, well, you know, cause I'm older and I think it's important to turn around and go, no, if something does feel wrong, stand up and say it, you've got to say it. Otherwise, what has changed in the world? You know, everybody talks about, oh, you know, it's so much more equal now. It's um, Well, no, it isn't, because if we're all still, as women, young women, coming into a room thinking, I'm frightened, I don't want to stick my head above the parapet, I've got to, um, you know, just sort of watch the room, I've got to see where the leader is, I've got to follow that leader, I've got to follow it. It's, it's not right. So in my activism, let's say, about identity, um, you know, um, a lot of younger Jewish actors, for example, you know, I was very, you know, will always, uh, you know, a big thing came up um, recently because a lot of people were scared to say they were Jewish and they would hide their Star of David if they had them on inside their tops when they'd go into a rehearsal room because they didn't want to get, you know, effectively pinned up against a wall within two minutes and asked about their opinions on, on, on Israel. And, um, and I don't think that's right. I don't think that's right. You, you wouldn't pin another, you wouldn't pin any other minority actor up against the wall within two minutes and say, what's your opinion on the Uyghurs or what's your, you know, I, I, so it's things like that, that I feel so passionate about saying that there has to be equality for all, that we have to stop living in fear. These things that I feel mm. I can be a role model about. Yeah, it's so interesting that, you know, the play is set in the 30s and it does feel 
feels a, all feels a little bit precarious, doesn't it? It feels like populism is coming back, the right is on the rise. It's very cyclical. So the timing is interesting. Well, there was a review, which I loved. One of the reviews said, written in the 1500s, set in the 1930s, absolutely relevant to 2023. History, you know, what do they say? The past predicates the future, Sam. And, Mm. you know, we're living in economically huge insecurity, globally massive insecurity. There's a war raging that's having a massive global impact, socioeconomic um, pulling apart a sense of nationalism, a lack of tolerance for, for others, the idea of blaming others for our loss. It is like uh, there is a large, loud warning bell. And when I'm going through headlines and newspapers and news reports of the 1930s, it's really chilling to see the similarities of some of the vernacular that we're using today. Yeah, it really we have to be is. Vigilant. Those um, amazing matriarchs who brought you up, Do you? how did they affect, do you think, your own approach to aging, how you felt about it? Oh, my grandmother, Grandma Faye, even on her deathbed, wore lipstick. You know, these were, it's a very European um, sensibility. You know, they were, they were poor, you know, they were so poor. A lot, a lot of them went into the schmutter trade, into tailoring. A lot of them were tailors and a lot of them were carpenters. Uh, so my, my grandmother and my great-grandmother, they were, they were called peace workers. They would sew, they would take the clothes home from the factories and they'd sew them. They absolutely understood in an Alexander McQueen-like precision, <laughs> the basis of a good cut and good and good quality material. So my grandmother would have one suit and one coat and one pair of shoes, but they were the best. It was about the quality, not the quantity. And it was about, it didn't matter if the worst thing had gone on, you know, you at home, I think my other grandma, I remember, you know, whatever happened to you at home, you could be crying and sobbing. The minute you walked out that door, you'd powdered your face and you'd put a little bit of lipstick on. And that was your, that was your uh, mask. That was your strength against the world. So I, I think this idea of, it's a, I think it's a very European idea amongst Italian and Spanish friends of mine and their grandparents. That idea of sort of glamour mm. was, you know, you always had your nails done, even though you probably couldn't afford to buy vegetables. Yeah. Uh, like I said, you know, you had one pair of shoes, but they were an amazing pair of shoes. That one coat was so beautifully cut and you always wore lipstick. So I think that that sort of probably affected me, which is you put on your war paint when you go out, no matter how awful you feel. Yeah, you always put your face on. But also the kind of power of those women, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like there was any diminishing power as they got older. You know, when you look at the women in the in the Second World War who fought in the munitions factories and when the men were away, took over running the country, basically, you know, for the first time, these women were tying their hair back and were were workers and were in charge of things and given um, and given a real sense of responsibility. And then after the war, these women were then sent back to the kitchens and all their immediacy and all their power was taken away from them and how, how hard that must have been. I think a, a, a lot of the matriarchs that I grew up with, they had power in the East End when they were younger because they were widows and they were running the, the schmutter business or the money, you know, whatever they were doing. But as they got older into their into their 50s and maybe had moved out of the East End and had moved more into the suburbs and they were kind of reduced, but they were they fought side by side with their men to build up those businesses. And then I did feel a little sense of frustration. Me and my friend Claire always talk about the women, you know, frying fish, fish and chips in their <laughs> little house in Hendon and thinking, wow, that woman was fighting black shirts and 
getting up every yeah. morning and at the market stalls in Watning Street and, you know, making making things happen. And were, were polit- they were all very politically active and really politically motivated. And I, I wonder in their 50s and, you know, 60s, 70s, if um, they had become more domesticated and if they enjoyed that. You didn't ever get to ask them, I suppose. Well, um, I don't think, I, you know, I, I wish I had. My gosh, you know, they say that uh, youth is wasted on the young. When I think of my great-grandmother, who I knew, to, who'd come out of Belarus, and she was with us till she was 92, and my grandmother, I used to listen to the stories and pick them up, but I would love to be able to sit with them. I mean, gosh, if I could have anything, mm. it would be to sit with those women now and say, what was that journey like at 14? What was it like living in a factory floor? What was it like being part of starting the labour movement in the end? You know, my I, my great grandfather apparently was um, knew Tol, uh, Trotsky back in and, and knew him and was part ended up being part of the Russian Revolution. You know those stories. You think I wish I'd I wish oh, I'd yeah. listened to those stories. It's such a waste, isn't it? You just think, oh God, just to have a couple of hours asking all those questions. Yeah. That... What was what's your what did you have strong matriarchs in your family? Not so much, I don't think. I mean, one of the things that I always think about my. Gran on my dad's side just had babies, babies after babies after babies. Wow. And my mum's mum was, I think, a very dissatisfied woman. And I think one of the things I often think when you look back at those generations and the way that their lives were lived, it wasn't really about choice, was it? It wasn't about deciding whether or not to have children or deciding. Mm you know, whether or not to get married. Often, you know, marriage was a way out. It was a way of survival. So I think I actually would love to talk to them, particularly my mum's mum, about what she really wanted, what in a different, you know, in a different time she would have, how she would have lived her life. And I think that goes for loads of older women, doesn't it? Yes. Yes, definitely. I think one of the, one of the things is when you're living hand to mouth and survival, there is a certain freedom because the freedom is you do anything to survive and you do anything to try and better mm. yourself. In some ways, it's quite a, a middle class luxury to be able to think, what are, what are my choices? What what yes, choice do exactly, I want? Do yeah. I, I, don't, I don't think they even thought like, well, I, I, I can, you know, I, I don't think they thought like that. I think it was just a case of you were working, you had an energy and a passion and a desire to sort of give your children the opportunity that you didn't have and to, to get on up and get on out. Yeah, totally. You were paying the rent and bringing the kids up and surviving, yeah. and that was as, as far as it went. And often, I don't know about in your, but I know that you know when I think about those EastEnders and and what it was, um, what it must have been like. You know, they were they were equal. Those men and women did. You know, they would you'd sort the kids out. You know, it took a village to raise a child. Your auntie next door or the neighbour next door look after the babies. You literally had to get up at six in the morning, get to the market store, pull it down, get all the things out, get those new Levi jeans that you were the first person to bring into England. You know, it was there was a, just a, there was a hunger. That's not to glamorise it because the slums were awful. But it's, it, I, I'm talking about it a lot because I've been, you know, I'm sort of dwelling so much into it for this for this project. So it's been kind of interesting. But it's really interesting because it's obviously massively shaped you. I hadn't realised how much it had, but I, I do think I won't be cowed. I will not, you know, I, I will not be, I'm not intimidated easily and I don't frighten easily. And I think those women were very much a part of that. Do you feel like now you're into your 50s, have you grown into yourself, do you think? Definitely, definitely. I can honestly say I think my 40s and 50s, 
and my yeah my 40s and my coming out to my mid 50s is has really been the time of my life i think i found a voice i think i'm less i'm less concerned about the observations of others or caring what others think ultimately you can't you know i don't like everybody so why should i expect everybody to like me there's a freedom in that and also just realizing how fantastic women are. You know, you go into a mm. park you know, these days, if I can be bothered to go to a party. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't God, it? God, FOMO is everything. I mean, what do they call it? It's not fear of uh, missing out. It's the uh, the desire to miss out. Yeah, joy of missing out. Yeah, the joy JOMO, of... exactly. Oh, nothing better than being in bed at 10 o'clock. But, um, you know, if you do go into a party, it's often who is that woman, who that older woman in the amazing shoes or the amazing glasses. She looks like, you know, I just, the company of women is brilliant. Women are brilliant. It's just so interesting you say that because I was talking to someone else about that thing that does come with invisibility, the so-called invisibility from the, the male gaze, if you want for a better way of putting it, that the the, the kind of obverse, is, that, is obverse the right word? Of that is that you start to become really visible to women, yeah. the older women. And it's yeah. like, it's almost like being part of a club. But also, I don't know whether, I mean, I always hated trying to make friends with people when I was younger. I found it really hard. I didn't really know what I was meant to be doing. But it's much, much easier when you're older because it's almost like you just cut through. Absolutely. I could never do small talk. And I'm loving it. Nobody does small talk these days. You know, like you meet really interesting people who just want to cut to the chase. But, you know, it's funny you talk about the... um, the being, you know, being invisible. Um, Quite a few of my friends in their early 50s um, have got divorced and all their husbands have left them. And uh, far from being invisible, they're just getting all these young men after them. But the, but the crucial bit is young. Oh, yeah. It is. That's the <laughs> crucial bit. I hear, Joe, I hear this so often. That's unbelievable. Men. What do you think? Why? Why do you think that is? Um, oh, God, I don't know. I don't know if it's... Well, I've heard different theories from different people. I was interviewing someone first thing this morning who's boyfriend is or lover as we call him is 13 years younger than her I've got another friend whose boyfriend's good 10 years younger than her I think it's I mean I don't think they even know what Mrs Robinson syndrome is because most of them are too young but I think there's also a, a slight generational thing where they're just they're just more they're just up for it and they're up for trying and also a lot of them they're not thinking about having kids they're not interested in having kids the number of women i've spoken to who've been like oh my god middle-aged men on dating sites they only want to date women who are 20 years younger than them and if you are unlucky enough to go on a date with them they're really bloody boring whereas i'm it yeah and and these friends of mine and obviously um oh stacy who's do yes Yes. So was it still okay? So I was reading Stacey's thing in the uh, I don't know her, but I was I've been following her on Instagram and yeah, she's yeah, I, I say hello from me, I'm a big fan. But she seems to represent a sort of real archetype at the moment of of these women that are suddenly liberated and fine. So a lot of my friends are on these are on sites and meeting younger men who are saying dating in their twenties with twenty and thirty year olds is a minefield of coded codes that they don't understand and that they don't they're, they're, they're a bit scared of but they was they're saying there's a real liberation in older in, in older women or women that are older than them because there's a you know you mean what you say there's nothing yeah. to sort of have to navigate through it's just uncomplicated and freeing and sexy and open and gorgeous and that made me think wow that's brilliant tempting 
No, I love my hubby. Yeah. I haven't got the energy apart from anything else. No. <laughs> Always, it's nice to know you could, but go home for a cup of tea. Yeah. Have a box set. <laughs> oh, God, always, yeah. So what's that? where have you been with menopause? You had it? Do you know, my mum was one of those mums. She had me very, she had me and my sister very young. She was like 20 by the time she had me and my sister. She was like, as she always says, she was like, I always think of that scene in Stardust Memories when Woody Allen's sitting on this really grey train and then suddenly a train goes by and it's a party train and everybody's like whooping and snogging and having a fun. And I always think my mum missed that party train. She just got there. She just got pregnant on married at 19 just before the 60s revolution started. So my mum, whenever I would say to my mum, oh, you know, what, what was pregnancy? Oh, can't remember, darling. You know, what was it? What was menopause? Oh, I don't remember. You know, yeah. did, you, did you have a menopause? I think so. can't remember. I have turned into that woman because I think I had a menopause, but it was other than being, I can't say, there's nothing I can even say on it. I don't think I was any grumpier, more irrational or more, under, maybe a little no. bit hotter. I know nothing specific that I can share on this one. No. Brilliant. My tolerance levels, which were already at the lowest ebb that they ever were, is are now so far down that I'm thinking that might be um, tired, very tired. But then I think that's probably because I do too much. Didn't particularly have the hot flushes. No, nothing particularly other than literally just female rage. To think I used to like you as well. (laughs) Well, well, sorry. (laughs) But no, that that's quite, and I never took any. I never took anything. Wow. Although for maybe a, no, nothing. Why could it have been horrendous? Tell me. Well, no, it could. I can't tell you because we haven't got time because I'm watching the clock now. But um, it could have been, but it wasn't. So that's great. Yeah, maybe it was, and I've just got a really high tolerance threshold. Maybe mm-hmm. I. It was. I think no, I, get, I, I think I think my main symptom, if I have one, is massive impatience. That's terrible, isn't it? Yeah, no, that could be. No, I just think you get to a point where you're just like, oh, cut to the chase. Oh, I'll do it. Oh. Give it to me. <laughs> God, I'll do it. Um, no, no, no. I tell, oh, here's the thing. This might be useful if we're talking about the menopause. I thought I was going through hot flushes. Um, and then I went to see a doctor who was very loath to put me straight onto HRT. And we did some investigations and it turned out I had leak. I had a low, I had a low thyroid. So she put me on thyroxine uh, and it yeah. uh, knocked it on the head. I've heard that before. That's interesting. So I'm going to ask you the questions that we always ask Go at on. the end and then we'll do them as quick fire as we can. So what's your emotional age? I think I was, I was probably 50 at 15. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, I just feel like a 15 year old girl. I don't know. I, I, can't, I can't say anything that just came from somewhere deep inside of me and I have no justification for it. <laughs> Give us a book recommendation. Random Acts of Senseless Violence by Jack Womack. Interesting. I think we've got that somewhere. I haven't read it, but definitely. So I love sci-fi and I love dystopian fiction. And I and weirdly through Twitter, the early days of Twitter, I became very friendly with Jack, who was my cult um, favorite sci-fi writer. I love a bit of Vonnegut and I love, you know, I love all that mm. stuff. I'm rereading 1984 as we speak. Um, but this Random Acts of Census Violence, which was written in the 80s, just really captured a dystopian a view of the world through a young girl whose family life and life around her is com- imploding in New York in a dystopian future. It's really prescient. It's fascinating. What advice would you give younger women? You don't have to be liked. Uh, who is your old bird role model? Iris Apfel, but she's probably everybody's. Uh, she's not actually, but she's a good choice. What's your superpower? Sniffing out bullshit. And how many fucks do you give? 
A day or generally? <laughs> generally, whatever you like. Probably give three fucks a day. I like really important things. When am I going to eat next? When am I going to eat Fucks, no, I think probably overall in life I give five fucks. Generally, those are my five fucks that I, and it will take a lot to push me off those five fucks. How many fucks do you give a day, Sam? Do you know what? It changes all the time. Every time somebody asks me this question back, probably less than I did and more than I should. And it varies from day to day. We have to discipline ourselves on the fuck, fuck, fuck factor because it can drain you, can drain yeah. us of our energy. Totally. Lovely to see you, Sam. Thank you, Tracy Ann. Lovely to see you. See you soon, I hope. Yep. Back to your rehearsals. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like my conversations with Minnie Driver and Sheila Hancock. You'll find a link to them and all the remaining dates for the Merchant of Venice 1936 tour in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.